Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. And last week, for those of you guys that were here, um, we looked at how basically last week was the reality of spiritual warfare in our world and why we experience satanic attacks and why there's, you know, spiritual warfare and, and basically chapter 12 ends with Satan being thrown down to earth since he knows that his time is short. And so since he's been thrown down to earth and he knows his time is short, he's read Revelation chapter 20, he knows he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. What's he going to do in the meantime? Because he can't, he can't stop Jesus dying on the cross and rising again because that's already happened. He can't take away our salvation because we're eternally secure. So what's he going to do? He's just going to come against us with pressure, with oppression, um, with attacks, especially to those who hold to the testimony um, of the Lamb. So go back real quick to chapter 12, verse 11. Somebody's whistling or singing something. Uh, chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him, that's, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Okay, so chapter 12 introduces us to the first member of the unholy trinity. Okay, I don't know if you guys know there's an unholy trinity. Okay, what's the, what's the holy trinity? The Father, Son, this is the true trinity, right? The, the holy trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God, one God, three persons. Historically, theologians and, and Bible teachers have talked about the unholy trinity, okay? Especially in Revelation, the unholy trinity is the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. So chapter 12, we were introduced to the role of the devil, and how he is making war on God's people. But we get to chapter 13, and we find out that the devil has two primary, I guess you call them henchmen or systems or partners in crime that come that, he, that Satan uses to, to unleash his, his war on the church. So, sorry, Nick. <clears throat> when we get to chapter 13, does everybody have a handout? Do we have enough handouts tonight for everybody? Well, you took the last one? Okay. Um, if, if, if couples can share, that would be cool. Because couples share, don't they? <laughs> share and share life. <clears throat> or does it, who needs one? Oh, okay. If some new people come in, okay, that's fine. Okay, so as we come to chapter 13, there's two questions we've got to ask. How... Does Satan, the great red dragon, pursue and make war on the church? How does he do it? Okay. That's question number one. 
Second question, which is a lot of difference of interpretations as we've talked about every week, when in fact do the events in chapter 13 happen? Now, we've been looking all along at the book of Revelation how there's somewhat of an already not yet aspect to Revelation. Some things are happening right now, but some things will happen in the future. The things that are happening right now aren't necessarily as intense as they're going to happen right before the end. So sometimes Revelation gets a little confusing because there's an already not yet approach. So here's the simple answer for question number one, how does Satan make war on the church? Simple answer, okay. Satan utilizes two other enemies, the beast and the false prophet, who comprise this unholy trinity to make war against God's people. Okay, so how is Satan going to do that? He's got two agents, the beast and the false prophet, who are going to be the agents to, to bring about that attack. And there's a difference between these two and what they do, and we'll talk about that tonight. Second question is harder to answer. How long or when is this going to take place? Uh, for a period of 42 months. Or as we've seen over the past few weeks, this time of tribulation has been going on ever since Jesus went back up to heaven and right before He comes back. And so here's where it gets a little tricky. Um, and I'll try to explain this tonight. And, and again, well, as I've said every week, there's different ways you can interpret Revelation I have an interpretation. You can agree to disagree. These aren't major things that we're going to disagree over. But I think in some way, this, I'll just put lay my cards on the table. In some way, the beast and the false prophet are always operating in the world in some way. But with that being said, at some point right before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a literal person that fulfills both of those roles. Does that make sense? So I'm going to try to explain what I mean by this. Um, the beast and the false prophet, I believe, are on the scene right now in some way, but they're going to be an actual individual. This, By the way, the beast, even though his name is not called the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, he's also known as the Antichrist. So the Antichrist and the false prophet are two different people. It's not the same person. One's the beast from the sea and one's the beast from the earth. Okay, and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through this, okay? So we're getting into a difficult chapter tonight. So let's go ahead and, um, and just dive in. So verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or ten crowns on its horns and a blasphemous names on it. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Okay, so where is the beast coming from? coming from the sea. Now, we read that and we don't think much about it, but remember John's original readers are a lot different than us. Okay, A couple things about John's original readers. They understood ap apocalyptic genre. They understood these images and the whole apocalyptic way of looking at things that we're far removed from. And 
as we've been saying every week, they were better acquainted with the Old Testament than we are. So, if you look at the description of this beast, it comes directly from Daniel chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. So, keep your finger in Revelation 13. Let's just read it again, okay? So, look at verse 2. The beast I saw was like a what? A leopard? Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion. And to the dragon it gave power and authority. And to it the dragon gave his power, his throne, and great authority. So what three animals do you have there? Leopard, bear, lion. Okay, that's what it looks like. Okay, Daniel chapter 7. So let's go back to the Old Testament. Daniel's after Ezekiel and before Hosea. Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. Daniel has a vision. And it's very similar to what John sees here. Okay? So, Daniel chapter 7. Everybody there? Verse 2. <clears throat> Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Okay, where? Back at, right, so we're going to keep our mind in Revelation, keep our mind in Daniel. Revelation 13, where's the beast coming out of? Sea. Okay, Daniel says here, I see a wind stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea. So there's four beasts in Daniel. There's one beast in Revelation. Okay? But what are the four beasts that come out of the sea in Daniel look like? Number, verse 4. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. Then I looked as if its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a mine was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, a little one, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Okay. Both of these beasts in Daniel, the four beasts come out of the sea. In Revelation, the beast comes out of the sea. Now you may say, well, why is it coming out of the sea? In Old Testament, especially literature, Old Testament thought process, in the Hebrew mind, the sea is always this cauldron that births evil, the, the, the dangerous sea. Uh, the sea is the birthplace of evil. And so that's why he's coming out of the sea. And so what do these four beasts represent in Daniel? What do what the four beasts represent in Daniel? It'll help us understand what the, the beast, beast in Revelation. Am I, are you guys tracking with me now? I know it's kind of hard going between both of these real quick. So four beasts in Daniel. <clears throat> okay. There's some debate among scholars as to what these are. Um, but I land where the majority of the conservative scholars like if you go read the conservative commentaries, um, this is where most, most commentators, most Bible teachers will land on. Okay, so the first gruesome beast was the lion with the eagle's wings. 
It represented Babylon. If you go back to ancient Babylon and you look at their coins and you look at their flags, the emblem of Babylon was a lion with eagle's wings. That was just their symbol for their, for their nation. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. In Revelation 13, 2, the beast had a, a mouth like a lion's mouth. Okay, now, because we're not studying Daniel, but because it's important, in Israel's history, okay, so let's talk about Israel's history for a moment. Israel's history. Now, obviously, on Sunday mornings, we're talking about Egypt, but when Israel becomes a nation and they divide into two after King Solomon, who's the first major world power to take over? Assyria. Okay, so Assyria is the first. So Assyria takes over the northern kingdom. I don't have the dates on this because I didn't write them down. I'm just doing this from memory. The second major kingdom is Babylon. And that's when they go into 70 years of captivity. That's the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. Okay. Then you have after, so like the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. Who conquered the Babylonians? Do you guys ever remember? Yeah, the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians. <laughs> then who conquered the Medo-Persians? The Greeks. You guys have good memories. The Greeks, this is under Alexander the Great. And if you remember Alexander the Great, like he was, what, 32 years old and he conquered the known world and he sat down and cried because there was no more to conquer. So, <clears throat> and then what was the final huge big world power that defeated the Greeks and was in power when Jesus came? And Paul, okay, so Rome. Okay, so the Roman Empire. Okay, so... Let's just take Assyria out of the mix because that's not what they're talking about in Daniel. So these four, these four beasts represent these four kingdoms. So I've got that in our notes. So the first gruesome beast is the kingdom of Babylon. Okay? The second gruesome beast, the bear, represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The bear was the key figure of the Medo-Persians. It was their symbol, their mascot, if you will. Um, and then you go back to Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. The Revelation beast had feet like a bear's feet. Okay? The third gruesome beast was like a four-winged leopard, symbolized Greece. In Revelation 13, 2, the beast was like a leopard. Now you may ask, why did the leopard have four heads? When Alexander the Great died, the kingdom of Greece was divided into four regions, the four heads coming off the, the leopard. Okay. Now, in Daniel's vision, the fourth beast is more dreadful than all the other ones. It's got iron, it's gruesome, it's, it's tearing things up. And then if you just look at history, what's the fourth beast? The Roman Empire the most powerful empire at that the world's ever known at the, I mean, pretty much when you think about the expanse of the roman empire during its heyday it conquered a lot of the known world more so than these other ones even did so in revelation we don't have the fourth beast do we 
we only have three. So some scholars would say, well, because it's missing the fourth one from Daniel, obviously because John is writing during the time of the Roman Empire, this beast that comes out of the sea is none other than the Roman Empire. Okay, that would make sense to the immediate readers. But is there some future aspect to this beast that it's more than just the, the beast that is more than just the Roman Empire at that time? Is there a future element to what, who this beast is? Yes. Okay, what do all the beasts in Daniel have in common? What's the common denominator? Besides the fact that some are lions and bears and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and so, uh, or leopards, what's the main common denominator between all of these kingdoms? Or they were conquered or they were, they were conquerors. Okay. They are all political totalitarian nations that oppress God's people. Did the Babylonians oppress God's people? Yes, took them into captivity. Remember what happened under the Medes and the Persians? The Maccabean Revolt under Antiochus Epiphanes. The Greeks, what did the Romans do? I mean, the Romans are, yeah, the Romans were the ones that, were, that occupied um, even Palestine. So, what I think John is doing here in seeing this composite beast is that he takes or he sees features of each of these three beasts in Daniel and he combines them into one, like, super beast. Instead of like one, two, three, four, he like rolls them all up into one into this like super beast that is the ultimate oppressor of God's people. So whoever this beast is or whatever this beast is that comes out of the sea, what do we know based upon Daniel it's going to do? It's going to be a totalitarian nation or person that's going to come against God's people. So here's the question, the literal question that we've got to ask. Is the beast a literal person, an end times antichrist, or is it symbolic of oppressive, satanically influenced governments? And as we see in Revelation, the answer is yes. NATO. <laughs> what was that? NATO. NATO. <laughs> so yes and yes. What is the beast? Okay. This is where the symbolism comes in. Not yet. It's not one historical person or one historical nation, but going all the way back to Babylon, Greeks, Persians, Romans, Nazi Germany, communism, you know, whatever it is, it's an abiding principle and force in the world controlled by the devil that's expressed an oppressive governmental power that demands allegiance from people, only that what is reserved for God. So what my argument is, and you can disagree with me, is that this beast is not only going to be a literal person, the Antichrist, but even right now in the world, there are satanically influenced governments that are coming against God's people that persecute them. Now, do we see that in the world today? Like in North Korea, Somalia, Iran, 
Um, California, okay. <laughs> People's Republic of California, okay. Um, if there's anybody out there on Facebook Live listening to California, you can either amen or boo, whatever. <laughs> so, no, but I'm serious. There's, there's totalitarian... Sure. And we had the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Which got put away. But sure. I believe they're coming. Personally, I believe they're yeah. coming back and we're going to be resurrected. Yeah. Any, any geopolitical nation that is opposed to the things of God and brings oppression to God's people yeah. comes in the spirit of this beast. But I also believe that it is a literal person that's going to show up at the end of the time, in, in, in times, a literal antichrist, like a literal person. Okay, so is this the antichrist? Before we answer that question, um, one thing you need to know about is the word antichrist does not show up in the book of Revelation. So it doesn't say, hey, the beast is the antichrist. It doesn't say that. In 1 John, who John the Apostle wrote 1 John, he wrote Revelation. John assumes there's many antichrists in the world right now, and there will continue to be. 1 John 2.18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and you've heard that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Okay, so there's an antichrist coming, the antichrist. But John's saying right now there's many antichrists. Many, many people that either are against Christ or stand in the way of Christ. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul in 2 Thessalonians speaks of an end time man, the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. And so in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way for that day, the day of the coming of the Lord, that, that final day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man, not a nation, not a whatever, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Okay, so let me give you the three major views, and then I'll give you mine, <clears throat> of, of, of historically where church history has landed on the identity of the beast in chapter 13, okay? Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said it is a literal antichrist, that it's, it's, not, a, it's not a series of governments that are in play right now. It's, this is only talking about literally an end times antichrist, okay? Polycarp who was actually discipled by John, the apostle who wrote this, he had, the he had more of a symbolic definition. He said, no, this is symbolic of government systems and heretical theology. It's not a literal person. It's more symbolic of systems and belief systems and governments. Okay. The reformers, Luther and Calvin and the Puritans, saw it as the Roman Catholic Church. They saw the Pope as the Antichrist. Okay, so... There's some people that still kind of think that or whatever. Okay, so here's what I think. And again, you can take this with a grain of salt. You can agree to disagree. Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's a combination of one and two in the sense that the beast, I think, is symbolic 
for oppressive, satanically influenced governments who rise and fall throughout history. At the head of each of these totalitarian states is a person. Okay, who was the head of Nazi Germany? Hitler. Who was the, who was the head of communist Russia during the, the Stalin? Okay, Mussolini, Saddam Hussein, um, Mao Zedong, um, whoever you want to put as the head of that. Okay, so I think I think from the I think way, like so Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, the Roman emperors. So. All throughout history, there's been an ebb and flow of these satanically influenced governments with a leader at the head. But with that being said, I think there will be one final oppressive government right before Christ comes back. And the head of that nation state or government or organization or whatever will be a literal man. I don't think it'll be a woman. I think it's pretty clear it's a man who will come in the spirit of Antichrist and be the embodiment of the beast. So I think it's a both and. So you could say right now in the world, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well operating through totalitarian governments. Yet there will be one final beast who will be the Antichrist who will usher in the great rebellion and the end times apostasy in the whole the whole shebang will come crashing down at the very end. Does that make sense? Okay. Now what does he do? In verse 3, he imitates the victory of Jesus, the Lamb. What does it say in verse 3? One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the, the beast. Now, What's a mortal wound? Something that you probably should have died from, but you don't. And everybody's like, that guy should have been dead, but he's not. And where's the mortal wound on? His head. So don't ask me what this is. I don't know if he got shot in the head and lived, and he walked around with a gunshot wound on his I, I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, He's imitating death and resurrection. Who's the only one that died and rose again purposely? Jesus. Okay? Now, I think I've told you this before, but the word anti, the little Greek preposition anti, A-N-T-I, it can mean two things in the Greek language. And I think it means both. It can mean against, in that the Antichrist stands against Jesus, against Christians, against the church. But it can also mean in the place of, which is actually kind of scarier. I'm not going to necessarily be against Jesus. I'm going to stand in the place of Jesus, which in, the, in a sense you're against Jesus. But this beast, this antichrist, whatever this world system is, this person is, he comes on the scene, it comes on the scene and says, instead of giving your allegiance to Jesus, you give your allegiance to me. And if you don't, you pay the price. In World War II, you certainly could have thought that would have been Hitler. Sure, yeah. sure. So I think that whatever this beast is and whoever this beast is, we could spend all day long trying to figure out who it will be. And I'll give you some ideas here later on of all the, the views throughout church history of who people thought it was. The main issue is that Satan is using this system or this man 
to, to, to push persecution from the government onto Christians. Okay? Now, what's the symbol of the beast dying and coming back to life with this mortal wound? Obviously, it's trying to parody Jesus, but it also shows that these despotic governments die and another one pops up. Did Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon die? What popped up in its place? Medo-Persians. When they died, what popped up in its place? The Greeks. When the Romans died, what popped up in its place? When Rome died, what popped up in its place? Germanic tribes all through Europe until they were unified again. So all throughout history, there's the death and the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of these, these empires. Okay? Now, there are two extremes in viewing this. Some see this as only historic, pertaining to Rome, and especially Nero. And there's a, there's a little rumor about Nero, the emperor, that supposedly he, um, he died. Everybody thought he died. But really, he went into hiding in the mountains of Parthia, gathering troops to come back to life and regain the throne. So there was this myth of Nero's death and resurrection. Like he faked his death, but then he went and hid, the, hid, hid in, the, in, the, in, the, in the hills and came back with the gut. You know, so some people say, oh, this whole mortal wound thing is totally historical. It only applies to Nero specifically in ancient Rome. The other view is to say, well, no, this is only going to happen futuristically in the last three and a half years of a literal seven-year tribulation after the church has been raptured. So we have to ask the question, is it totally past with Rome or is it totally future? Okay, so if those are my two choices, I'm not going to take either one of those choices. Is it totally past? No, because we've seen it happening. Is it totally future? No, because we see it happen. Will it be future? Yes. So Rome was a paradigm of this type of totalitarian oppressive government. And it was applicable to the original hearers because they were under Roman Empire. But governments die, rise again, die, rise again. We see a clue in understanding the when does this beast have authority. Verses 4 through 7. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling of those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Okay. The beast is given, it seems like, absolute, seems like absolute authority to take over the world. We'll talk about that in just a moment. That's a good question. Yeah. What is happening here is that secular power, totalitarian governments are almost being like deified becoming like a god. Because at the end of chapter 4, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? What are people saying either to this man or to these governments? We're going to give our allegiance to it. 
we can't fight against it, who is like these totalitarian governments. So when secular power is deified or made godlike, people expect the government to be God and submit to the government in a way that only should be reserved for God. When this happens, the dragon is worshipped. Here's my big fear in America. So I'm going to start preaching here for just a minute. So take off the teaching hat, put the preaching hat on. So, okay, so we're entering into a phase in American culture where we're seeing a polarization of culture. Okay. You're seeing a whole group of younger people growing up with the mentality of what? The government owes me everything. I need free education. I need free health care. I need free this. I need free that. And I'm owed this. And the gov that's the jo job of the government. And I don't try I'm not trying to get political here to say that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is when you put too much stock in the government, what does that government become to you? A God. And you will do whatever that government says to keep the stuff coming. Which is, that's how totalitarian nations happen. They begin to give people free stuff and free stuff. How did communism happen in Russia? You give people, you, get, you make people dependent upon the government and the government becomes the God. Okay. So again, I'm not trying to be political or, 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 or try to, what I'm doing is I'm making an observation that American culture, the younger generation of millennials that's being raised right now, if you look at the studies, if you look at the news reports, if you look at the exit interviews, if you look at the, all the indicators show us that within, and I'm not trying to scare you guys because some of you won't be alive by then. And that, that's kind of scary too. I'm not trying to scare you that way, but <laughs> so I'm saying I would not be surprised. And this is just Sean. You can disagree with me afterwards and say, you're whack. You make no, no, you make no sense. You're crazy. It would not surprise me within 20 to 30 years in America that our nation is ripe for some type of totalitarian takeover because we've had a whole generation of people being brainwashed to think that the government's the be-all, end-all. And individual liberties and things related to what we value right now as Christians, the, the ability to speak freely, um, all those things may come crashing down. It may not happen. It may. But what we see here in Revelation 13 is the world, whether it's right now, whether it's in the future, they're saying to the beast, they're saying to this government system, you're the be-all, end-all, and we're going to give you our allegiance. And when you do that, when you give your allegiance to the government, that's the epitome of idolatry. And then you're, you're a slave to the government, not to the Lord. Okay. So how long is this supposed to happen? Again, this is symbolic or literal. Take your pick. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, times, times, and half a time. And we've talked about this over the, over the past few. There's two different main interpretations. This can either be a literal three and a half years during a time of tribulation, or we've also said that a lot of people take the three and a half years as symbolic for just the period between the first and second coming of Christ that is happening right now, but it will intensify at the very end. Okay? 
Now, to answer your question, Paul, in verses 8 and 10, the wording there is very interesting, saying it was what? five. In 5, it was allowed. Verse 7, it was allowed. And authority was given to it. Now, who was the only one that can give authority to anybody to do anything? God. So God allows it. God gives it authority. The beast cannot ultimately win even though it seems like to him or to the system he may have unlimited authority because everything the beast has is from God's sovereignty. One thing that you have to remember, the devil is God's enemy but not God's equal. The devil always serves the purposes of God. and can only do what God allows him to do. Now, here's where it gets encouraging. It gets controversial, and we're going to dive into the deep end of the pool. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb of God who was slain. If anyone has a ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay. God sovereignly ordains even our experience of persecution. In other words, these are never random things. God will predestine this to happen. Notice what he says in verse 10. If anyone's taken captive to captivity, if he goes, if anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. This is what it means to overcome with your faith and to be faithful to the very end, even if it includes death. Now, let me just say with this, I don't think this, there's, two, there's, there's a way you can take this to an extreme. Let me just ask you a question. Will every single person be a martyr and die a martyr? No. Okay. Does God sovereignly ordain that some will be martyrs? Is God in control of that? Okay. So that can either give you, that can either make you be very scared if you're the one that's being martyred, <laughs> or you could be comforted to say, even down to the very detail of being martyred, God is sovereign in control of that, and I can stand in the face of that because I know God is sovereign even over that. It's for His purpose. Um, no experience of persecution can ever threaten our eternal life. Okay, He's a beast on a leash. In verse 8, what is verse 8 teaching? God has a book of life, and there's people's names that are written in the book of life. When were their names written in the book of life? Before the foundation of the world. Okay? Before or from? Either way, before. From, yeah. And is there a difference? Not really. 
Um, so we can go down this path tonight or we cannot go down this path tonight. You've got a passage of Scripture here that says that something happened before the foundation of the world. You've got to deal with what that means. So, well, to me, it's, it's certainly people of the knowing God was people of the knowing before we ever, there ever was any kind of dirt whatsoever, whether I would accept him right. or the Lord and Savior or not. And the question, yeah. right, and, the, and that's one interpretation that God knew you were. The other interpretation is God chose you to do that. So there's, there's two different views of election. Um, let's just read Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, and then you guys can determine whether we want to skip over this and move on or we want to. So we've got this terminology of before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Um, I would say for the sake of time, we just skip over this because we have a whole second half of the chapter here. Let's just put it this way. There's different views of election and predestination. And you need to figure that out and figure out which view you hold to. But you have to come to grips here that if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what will you not do? You won't worship the beast. What does it say there in verse 8? All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Ephesians 1, 3-5, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be saved. So whatever view you hold of election and predestination, you can get caught up in that view. The point is, if you're a true Christian, you're not going to give your allegiance to the, to the beast. Okay, or we'll put it a different way. You will not take the mark of the beast. Okay. Kind of an encouragement. I think of okay. soldiers that go to war. And what I've always heard is that, am I, as a soldier, going to be the man I need to be? Yeah. And brave the way I need to be. So kind of here it says, yeah, I will be. Yeah. So... Here's the thing that we can, regardless of what view of election you hold to, because you can get, we can get sidetracked on that. Here's the point. If you're truly saved, God will sustain you to the end. Whether that means martyrdom, whether that means you die a peaceful death. Like, wouldn't we all want to die a peaceful death? Like, you just fall asleep and then you're, you know. Like, you hear about some people that just, you know, they... They fall asleep and they, they, go, they go to be with the Lord. Um, some people in you know, places like North Korea, they're, they're martyred for their faith. Regardless of how your death's going to happen, two things will happen. Number one, if you're truly saved, God will make sure you stay saved to the end. You can't lose your salvation. And number two, he, they can't take your salvation from you. Even if they try to take your life, they can't take your salvation. Okay? Even if, the, and think about this for a moment here. Whether we're alive during this time, think about how hard it's going to be if the whole earth is worshiping the beast. 
So let me just ask you a question. Is it hard being a Christian right now in our culture? What does the, Christ, what does the culture say about us? What are we allowed to say and not say? Or we say it, but we get backlash. I'm not sure if when this happens, whenever this happens, I, I'm pretty sure the church is going to be underground. I, I don't think there's going to be these mega churches where people are worshiping. And if there are mega churches, they're probably not going to be preaching the true, the true gospel. Okay? So that's the first beast. The beast out of the sea who is also called the Antichrist. This represents oppressive governments, totalitarian governments. And then you have the second beast, the beast from the earth. Okay, so one, the first beast is from the sea, the second beast is from the earth. Okay. We also need to realize that we have the identity of this second beast. Elsewhere in Revelation, he's referred to as the false prophet. In chapter 16, verse 14, in chapter 19, verse 20, in chapter 20, verse 10, he's considered the false prophet. So let's read this, and then we'll give you guys some views of what what this is. I don't want us to get lost tonight because I'm going to bring it all to a close and show you what these these two beasts really do, like practically, and then we'll... We'll kind of move on from there. All right, so again, is this a literal person? Is it a literal false prophet? Or is it false teaching? Okay, so what are the historical views again? Irenaeus, early church father, he thought that this was a literal person. He was the right-hand man of the Antichrist. He was like the minister of propaganda that went around and, and, and worked for the Antichrist to bring about false teaching. The other view, again, sees it as strictly symbolic, it's symbolic of heresy, false religion in all ages. And of course, the reformers thought it was the Pope that was the false prophet again. So again, what do I believe? I think it's a composite of one and two. I think it's symbolic of false religion and heresy attempting to lead the church astray from within. But I also think it, it could be a real end times person who works in conjunction with the real Antichrist to lead people astray into heresy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7, 15? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, back then he said, beware of false prophets. Are there false prophets right now? Okay, okay, yes. Are there many antichrists right now? Yes. Will there be a literal end times antichrist? Yes. Will there be a literal big time false prophet? Yes. Okay, so... Let's read 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to get tonight if you don't get anything else. Don't think like way off in the future these things are going to happen. Think right now. There are two major types of oppression going on in the world right now, and a lot of it depends on culture and location in the world. The first type of pressure, the first type of oppression against God's people is totalitarian governments who persecute Christians through brute force from the outside. Do we see that much in America yet? We don't see totalitarian governments persecuting the church. What we do see in America is the second type of oppression, and that's seductive seductive deception of false religion from inside the church. Now, here's the problem. Which enemy is easier to see? The first one's easy to see because it's coming at you from outside. You know, we're under oppression, we're under persecution, we have a visible enemy, it's the state, it's coming against us. The second enemy from inside is harder to see because you can be lulled into believing false teaching as it creeps into a church or it creeps into a group. So the first beast from the sea represents this first type of pressure. Totalitarian pressure from governments, nation states from the outside on Christians. The false prophet represents oppression against God's people, but more from the inside through false teachings. What did we see in the seven churches way back a long time ago? There was emperor worship. There was cultic religion in almost every city where they were required to go to the temple once a year and drop a pinch of incense on the altar and confess that Caesar is Lord and God. Excuse me. In those seven churches, <coughs> you saw both. Some of those cities, they were being persecuted by the state. <coughs> Excuse me. And in some of those cities, they were being seduced from within. Now, I'm going to just take a little digression and talk about. Excuse me, I swallowed that water wrong. <coughs> Modern day ideologies that are products of the second beast. Now, I don't expect you to remember all these, but these are things, these are belief systems, these are worldviews, these are ideologies that are alive and well in our world, all over the world, depending on where you live. (coughs) So here's the first. Naturalism. The universe is one-dimensional. There's no such thing as a soul or spirit. There's no such thing as a creator. Everything can be explained by science and natural law. Therefore, man is a a chance product of evolution. Examples of this ideology today would be atheism, Darwinian evolutionism, agnosticism, or existentialism. It's basically the idea that there really is no higher, there really is no God. 
We are not <clears throat> people that have eternal souls. We're not created in the image of God. We're just products of biological goo that have just figured out how to evolve and it's survival of the fittest and things can be explained by biomechanical synapses in your brain that cause you to do what you do and at the end of your life you just die. That's a really encouraging way to live, isn't it? Atheism. Darwinianism. And morals, how do morals work in a naturalistic world? It's a dog-eat-dog it's a dog world, so it, the morality really doesn't mean anything. Now, you talk to atheists, and it gets really difficult when you talk about morals. Because atheists will say morals are necessary to govern society. But then you say, well, where do those morals come from? Well, we just evolved and figured them out over the years. Okay. Second major worldview. Okay, we see this a lot when we go to India. Pantheism. This is the exact opposite of naturalism. Okay, pantheism is everything spiritual, but it's impersonal. Everything's part of God. God is in everything. So your ultimate goal is to be one with God through whatever means necessary because the universe is all part of God. The trees, the plants, people, animals, um, everything is spiritual. There's no difference between you and God. This is what Hinduism is. This is what Buddhism is. It's New Age, Taoism. Tapping into the divine by transcending this world and getting in touch with your inner spiritual self so you can be one with nature. What was that movie that came out a few years ago with the blue people? Um, Avatar. Not the Smurfs. Did somebody say the Smurfs? <laughs> yeah, that movie, the Smurfs. That's a great example. La, 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 la. All right, so anyway, no, Avatar, the movie Avatar. Do you guys remember that movie? I never saw it. I was the only person in America that didn't see it. It was like the top grossing movie of all time. It, it's supposed to be like an ode to pantheism. Um, all right, let's talk about, we also see this in India big time and in places in Africa too, polytheistic animism. You're like, what in the world is polytheistic animism? Okay, so polytheistic, many gods, animism, worship of your ancestors. So the world is populated by spirit beings that govern what happens. God and demons are real, and the reasons behind natural events. Often those who hold to this worldview worship their ancestors and fear them as evil spirits. This is what we encounter when we go into the villages of India. People worship their ancestors. And if their uncle did something, like if, if, like, they, they don't, like if their dead uncle is a spirit, they don't want to make him mad because he may come and mess up their crops. And so you'll go into these villages and you'll see them going to the witch doctor and sacrificing a, a, a chicken to try to ward off their old dead aunt who's out to get them. Okay, so it's, it, it's this whole idea of worshiping. And so there's a lot of different types of superstitions. So African religions, uh, thousands of tribal areas in India, uh, parts of Asia. Okay, probably where we live in America, a big one is postmodernism and relativism. Reality is not absolute but must be interpreted through the community or social structures. No one person or belief system has the corner on truth, but truth can only be discovered through the group. 
Moral values are not absolute, and tolerance is championed as the ultimate virtue. Freedom of expression, inclusivism, and the refusal to claim to have the answers are the only universal values. What's the one sin in America today? To say there's no such thing as sin. The biggest sin in America is to say there's only one way of thinking, one absolute truth, one set of morals. Um, we've got a, a worldview in, in America where you do what you want to do, I do what I want to do, because there's no absolute thing telling us what to do. So when it comes to human life, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to transgender, when it comes to all these different things, you have no right to stand in judgment and say that's wrong because the Bible says so, because that's intolerant. <clears throat> okay. Now there's some non there's non-Christian theism, which is another belief system. That's just um, Judaism and Islam. They believe there's one God who created the world, and He's known through His sacred writings. Um, it's not Christ, the Christian God, but it's it's a belief in a God, and there's a moral written code that you obey to get to that God. Now. How does, so those are just some examples of how the false prophet influences worldviews. How does this land, how does this land be, oh, I'm sorry, that didn't make sense. How, did this, how does this land be slash false prophet deceive the world? Okay, how does he deceive the world? He does it through what? Counterfeit miracles. Look at verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. By the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was allowed to give breath to the image and the beast, so the image of the beast might even speak. Okay, so animated statues speaking demonic things that the false prophets give them power to do. Okay. It's interesting when you go back and read the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that tells you comes to pass, and he says, let us go after other gods which you've not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Okay, so what's, what's God saying? Even if they perform miracles... But they say, let's go after a different God. Don't listen to them. Because they're doing counterfeit miracles. They're doing signs and wonders, but they're not doing it in my name. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him, keep His commandments, obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. What did Jesus say about false Christ and false prophets? Mark 13, 22 through 23, Jesus said, For false Christs, antichrists, and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So what does Jesus even say? They're going to they're gonna perform major signs that are going to be very, very convincing. But they're false Christs. They're false prophets. 
Remember the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-11. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So even the false prophet, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is going to be performing demonically inspired signs and wonders to deceive people. And all this is being allowed by God. I think this is a future. Yeah, I think this is a future time more so because I mean we're not seeing. I mean I don't. Do you guys see false signs and wonders that would make you be like, "Ooh, that"? I don't think we're seeing that quite yet, but it it, it's going to happen. But there are false belief systems that we can fall prey to, and that's why First John four. Whoops, First John four says this. Uh, verses 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. Test the spirits. Okay. Okay. Now, verses 14 and 15 are kind of spooky because these images, like, so the false prophet gets the people in the world to create the image of the first beast, statue, image, or whatever. Then he makes the statue talk. Okay. One view of this sees this as a historical reference to the Roman emperors who had statues made of them, and this false prophet was used satanically induced ventriloquism to make it speak and to cause people to fear. There, here's what's kind of scary when you start doing research. There's a huge amount of historical evidence that shows that magic arts were very popular in the ancient world. Simon Magus, you remember him in Acts? Historical evidence shows that he was known to bring statues to life. Supernatural miracles have always been performed by false teachers. Remember the magicians in Pharaoh's court in Exodus a few weeks ago. Now, whether this is literally satanic-produced animated statues that are speaking blasphemies, I don't disagree with that at all. I think God, I mean, I think they can do counterfeit miracles. The other view is to say, okay, this is a symbolic way of looking at how false religion really captivates people and persuades people. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, let's go to verses 16 through 18 where it talks about the mark. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to receive a mark where on the right 
hand and on the... Okay, so what have we already seen in chapter 7 about being sealed on forehead? Who's sealed on their foreheads first? Christians, believers, we've been sealed by God. We've been protected by God back in chapter 7. So if you're a Christian, you can't see my seal. I can't see yours, but you have a seal. God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He's made you His. You are, you're secure. But the mark, the, we need to think about how the original hearers would have understood a mark, how they would have understood it. Disobedient slaves or soldiers were branded with the mark. So if you were a runaway slave and you got caught, they'd brand you, bring you back. Religious tattooing was very common in that day. They would brand themselves or tattoo themselves with religious symbols. The word mark was used for the likeness or name of a Roman emperor on coins. Whatever this sealing or marking it's an exact opposite or it's a parody or it's trying to mimic what God has done to true believers. And it calls for wisdom and calculating the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. It is 666. So this is what you guys all been waiting for tonight, haven't you? What is 666? Some people follow a Hebrew practice called gematria. Gematria, you can go look it up on, on the internet or whatever. Gematria is a practice which tries to find hidden clues and numbers that correspond to people's names through like cryptograms and mathematical calculations. So for example, I knew one person who did this big dramatic gematria calculation to try to figure out who the Antichrist was and basically he determined it was Barney the Purple Dinosaur based upon the Gematria. The early church fathers, like some people referred to Nero as 666. Um, the early church didn't recognize that. That idea came in about the mid-1800s by a, a German scholar. But throughout history, People have tried to use Gematria. So Gematria would be like take the, the initials of their, their first name, the middle name, their last name, and try to, try to do number combinations to calculate who this person is that you're going to take the mark of the beast. So all throughout history, there's been some, some suggestions. Nero, Caligula, Vespasian, numerous popes, Napoleon, Hitler, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, when I was growing up, it was Gorbachev because he had that little thing on his forehead. And suppose um, some people said it was Hillary Clinton. Um, some people have even said it's George H.W. Bush by calculating. So here's the thing with Gematria, some, some observations. Number one, nowhere does John use Gematria as a method. Now, he does use symbolic numbers, seven symbolic 10 symbolic, 144,000, 24. Those are pretty easy to understand. John calls for wisdom in calculating this number, not mathematical ingenuity, only for a select few who can figure it out. Here's the problem with Gematria. You can create your own code. You can come up with whatever you want by the code. So I'm going to go into a Bible program, and every 
every sixth letter of whatever Roman emperor it was times their reign of how many years, and that's going to come up with, you know, that you can, you can create whatever, I guess, what's the word, algorithm you want to come up with the answer you want. John doesn't say go into all this stuff. He just says it calls for wisdom. But then he gives us this statement. It's the number of a, of a man, of a man. He doesn't, give, he, he doesn't give a literal person here. He doesn't say it's the number of the beast. He does say the number of the beast, but he says it's the number of a man. Okay. So why 666? That's pretty easy to understand based upon Revelation. What's the perfect number? Seven. Six is one short of seven. Okay, so it's, it's not God's number seven. Six is one short. Okay, three sixes, six, six, six to represent what? The Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In other words, some people see this as a, like a, a mark, a tattoo, a barcode, implant chip. It could be. I don't know. Um, I'm just, whether it's an implant chip or not, I'm not a big favor of having the government know information on my, on my body, but that's just it's a personal decision. Um, it's symbolic number of the unholy trinity of the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. It's the, unholy, the mark of the unholy trinity. Not Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but dragon, beast from the sea, beast from the land. If we take it symbolically, okay, oh, here's the big question. Is the mark of the beast something in the future or can it happen now? Well, last time I checked, did any of you guys go and get your beast mark? Or did you see anybody pulling up to the DMV and say, I need to get my six? I mean, you're not seeing that happen now. So if you take it symbolically or literally, um, if we take it symbolically, we could say in a symbolic sense, any person who's not a Christian and doesn't give their life to Christ, in a sense, they've already pretty much, you know, if they die without ever becoming a Christian, they, they're going to go to hell and they're going to have, you know, that's going to be their identity. Here's the thing. Some people may not knowingly worship Satan or the beast. So, like, I, I don't know how all this happens, but I don't know if there's going to be this massive group of people walking around knowingly, like consciously knowing they're worshiping Satan. I think they're going to be so brainwashed that whatever the government hands down to them and whatever false teaching they've imbibed, that's just what they're going to believe. But it's going to be satanically inspired worship. But we do know this. They are not those who have been sealed back in chapter 7. They're not those who've been protected in chapter 11. And they're not those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And where's the mark on? Forehead, hand. Now, the forehead and hand symbolize something. The nature of your allegiance. What consumes your mind? Why the forehead? What you think, what you process, what you see. And your hand is what you do. What you think and what you do. What you think about and what you do shows who you are pledging your allegiance to. 
If you're always consumed with Christ and thinking about Christ and serving Christ, that's who you, that's who you're, that's who you worship. If you're always thinking about the things of the world, if you're always thinking about sin, if you're engaging in sin, that's who you worship. Okay. How long is the duration of the second beast? Three and a half years. Could be a future thing. Could be a present thing. Here's the bottom line. What's the takeaway from chapter 13? Here's the takeaway. All the symbolism. Let's just kind of distill this down into a takeaway. The dragon, which is Satan. The sea beast, which is the Antichrist. And the land beast, which is the false prophet. They're not the Father, Son, and Spirit, and they have no ultimate power. They've been given authority by God and His sovereignty, and they will come at us with great wrath, but we can conquer through endurance and faithfulness to the gospel. Now, here's, here's a little saying I want you to remember. If you have the mark of the beast, you will endure the wrath of God. If you have the mark of God, you will endure the wrath of the beast. You understand what I'm saying there? <laughs> okay. Some here are like, it takes me a minute. If you die in your sins without trusting in Christ, you will endure the wrath of God forever in hell. If you have the mark of God, you are a Christian, the beast is going to come against you with wrath and fury. And how does Satan do that? How does Satan attack us? on a grand scale, and individually, but on a grand scale, external persecution that comes from totalitarian nation-states that are opposed to the gospel. So external pressure. That's one way this unholy trinity comes at God's people. Probably not so much in America. <coughs> the other way he comes is through internal seduction stemming from false belief systems opposed to the gospel. Okay. Which, again, I say is more dangerous because sometimes you can't see it. Okay. So regardless, okay, so here's the thing, guys. Regardless if this is a far-off reality and you're going to be there or whether it happens tomorrow, here's the thing. Are you always in this life today going to be confronted with false belief systems that you're going to have to decipher what the truth is? Okay. And is there possibly a day in the near future where the government's going to become and the culture's going to become from the outside more intensely against Christianity. Okay. okay, so are those two things ever going to go away? Now, they may be intense in different parts of the world. They may get more intense, but two things you know you can live with is the culture's not going to like you as a Christian and there's always going to be the danger of embracing a false belief system. So what do you do as a Christian if both of those forces are coming at you? How do you endure the wrath of the unholy trinity? We endure faithfully in the truth of the gospel. You know, this is not in your notes, but that's really why you need a church family. I don't know how, I don't know how you can truly grow in Christ and be secure in your salvation. Not that you lose your salvation. I don't know how you could, let me, let me phrase it this way. I don't know how you can grow in Christ and be encouraged and not, embrace, not be susceptible to false false teachings and, and not be encouraged when the world comes against you to have a support system if, you don't, if you're not connected to the life of a local church. Where the church, you know, this is, a revelation is not meant for you to walk out of here and say, I got to do this all by myself. No, we're supposed to walk out of here like we can, we can do this together. 
We encourage one another. We stand in the gospel together. We, we encourage one another. We stand strong with one another. We, we pray for one another. We encourage one another. Because when you come into the church, what have you been dealing with all week? You get battle scars from the world. Last thing you want to do when you come in here is to get, to get more battle scars. You want to have encouragement. You want to have love. You want to have support. You want to have encouragement. Um, you, want to, you want to be fed in the gospel. You want to have solid theology so you're not led astray so that you can go back out and face what the world's bringing at you. Um, so um, when, you, when you read Revelation, never think, man, I'm going to go through this alone. God, God gives us the church family to go through it together. Okay, we got 10 minutes. Questions, comments, or snide remarks? Yes, Jerry. Um, some people aren't going to be able to uh, get either one of the marks. They've got so many tattoos. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else is one. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's one way to look at it, Jerry. <laughs> All right. Anybody else have any questions? That was a snide remark. I've got a question. And, and yes, Paul. In Dragon, I can't find the scripture verse, but it comes out of the sea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read where sometimes you have things like sea and water really mean peoples, certain peoples. Yeah, I can. It, it can. Yeah, it can be interpreted as peoples because you've got like the coastlands and the different people groups that are all across the seas of the world. Um, it can be that way, but in the Hebrew mind, um, the ocean or the sea, just in their in their mind, especially if you go back to the prophets and you, you read like Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the prophets and minor prophets, the sea is always the place where it's kind of the birthplace of trouble and chaos and evil and... Um, that's why, like, when Joseph got thrown overboard into the, the, the sea, he, the, the, the fish swallowed him, which was an act of grace to protect him from the sea, and he was swallowed by the fish. And, and so, um, not that the sea is like, not that there's like demons swimming through the sea, it's just a symbolic way of saying the sea's scary out there. Um, it's dark, it's, it's, it's dark, it, you can't swim, it's, it's kind of menacing, and this is where these beasts rise up out of the sea. He used to what? He used to believe that there were demons and all mm-hmm. kinds of things coming out. Of yeah, some of the Jewish su- superstition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, Kevin. Uh, in some of the earlier weeks of mm-hmm. this series, uh, in <coughs> the earlier portions, I think we've covered, covered it. Mm-hmm. Were the original hearers of this letter, uh, were many of them? Oh yeah, not not many of them, but because this is Asia Minor, yeah. modern day Turkey. Uh-huh. Um, some of the some of the towns had a more Jewish population than others, uh-huh. but for the most part, these are predominantly Gentile believers. Right. But they knew their Old Testament. Doesn't mean there weren't Jewish people in the churches, but probably predominantly a Gentile audience in Ephesus and Laodicea and okay. Smyrna and places like that. Is that? Uh, Well, it came, it came from Paul's missionary journeys. Okay. Remember, Paul planted a church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. 
Colossae is not mentioned, but Colossae is close to Laodicea. So a lot of those churches were either planted by Paul or came from the church in Ephesus. And if you remember the church in Ephesus, Paul planted it. Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus. And later on, John was the pastor of Ephesus. Talk about a great trilogy of preachers. Who was your, who was your favorite pastor? Was it Paul, John, or Timothy? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> take, your, take, your, take your guess on that. So, but yeah, predominantly, those churches were probably at least, we know Ephesus was started by Paul, and then they, there was a church planting movement in Asia Minor okay. through those churches. Uh-huh. They got that. Yes, so what, Dennis. On the 666, what do you think, the, what's the idea behind that to where it's there for us to, to calculate? To calculate or? You know, I, I, in some sense, Dennis, there's going to be some, because it says there, verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So sometime in the future, there may be a worldwide economy where you can't, operate unless you've got unless you've pledged allegiance to this government and whatever system that is i don't know what that looks like that's why some people think it's like an implant chip um, and so a lot of christians may say because all right so think about this this the, the original readers had to go to the temple of zeus or the temple of diana or whatever once a year, they had to walk into a pagan temple as a good citizen. They had to take a pinch of incense on the altar. They had to stand before the public officials, and they had to say, this year I give my allegiance to Caesar as my Lord and my God. Now, do you think Christians are going to do that? No, they didn't do that, and they were persecuted, and they suffered. They lost their jobs. Some of them may have gone hungry. Okay, So there's a cost to pay. So here's the thing, Dennis. Would you rather experience the temporary wrath of the Antichrist and go hungry or the eternal wrath of God by not taking the mark? Does that, does that make sense? So I, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think in some way in the future, it's going to be known by all what this is, whatever it is. And I don't know if... I think Christians will know exactly what it is. and we, we, like I've, always, I've always heard people say, what if I take the mark of the beast? What if I take the mark of the beast? If you're a Christian, you won't take the mark of the beast. You'll know. You, you're not going to be fooled into taking it. You're going to know what it is, okay? Um, so I don't think like, I just think God's going to protect you from doing that. If you're already sealed by God, he, you're not going to be deceived into taking that. Yes, Kevin. It almost seems like everything I've heard, and I've never been in a place where there's persecution, like, sure. like North Korea or places sure. like that you were saying. But I've heard that in places where there is persecution, like what we're talking about here, this control, economy control, things like that, the church actually grows. Yeah. I think it's stronger. Yeah. And the, and the fellowship is stronger yeah. than we, what we experience here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not an absolute statement, but it's a pretty good statement to say when there's persecution, mm-hmm. the church may be a, a little purer yeah. because you have to be the real deal. You're not. There's not like fake Christians walking around. Like, 
It's not a cultural Christianity where you just say you're a Christian because it's the cool thing to do. It's not a cool thing to be persecuted. So if you're really a Christian, you're really a Christian in those cultures. But isn't it true, though, that when there was persecution, it seems like numerically the church sure. grew? Yeah. It's yeah. Like Satan's like, you don't learn your lesson? Yeah, you that's know? true. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Last minute. All right. There'll be a treat next week, but I won't tell you what it is. It won't be ice cream, unless you want to bring it. All right. Well, let's pray, and then um, we'll be we'll be ready. But Father, thank you for your grace, um, Lord. That this is every time we we read Revelation, it, it kind of sober sobering. It's um, even sometimes confusing. But Lord, um, what I want us to understand, at least what I want to understand tonight, is the importance of being part of a church family that preaches truth, that we can encourage one another, uh, we can walk in, in, in love with one another, and when the assaults come that we face during the week, uh, we can have a place where we can be encouraged and loved and, um, and supported, and that we're given the tools to go back out and, and face that, and we can, we can be salt and light in our culture, and Lord, help us just to stand strong, to be the people you've called us to be, um, to expect the attacks, because we know they're coming, uh, but to do everything in gentleness and respect and love, and to... Um, just be the people you've called us to be for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.